When it comes to ice, there are a lot of different terms for things that ice can make. First off, there's ice cubes, ice cream... (laughs) Oh wait, I'm here to talk about glaciers. Okay, on a grander scale, we have ice fields and ice sheets, glaciers, ice shelves, and icebergs. In this episode, I'll hack into the bits and bobs of all of these kinds of ice and have an awesome guest come on to talk about her experiences with a few of them. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. If we start at the biggest end of the spectrum, we have ice sheets. These are massive piles of ice that form on land where it's cold enough for ice to, well, not melt. Right now, there are ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica, and they are responsible for the telltale white blobs over those land masses on all of our maps of the world. Next on the list, we have ice fields. These are bits of ice usually bounded by mountains or mountain ranges that have many glaciers flowing into them, kind of like a lake with a bunch of rivers filling it up. Or, as my friend Mariama says, An ice field is a bunch of connected glaciers. Glaciers are rivers of ice. They can be hundreds of kilometers long or just a few kilometers. The biggest descriptor of a glacier is that it's a body of ice bounded by rock, and that it flows because the weight of the ice is so heavy. Now, when it comes to ice interacting with water, many of us are probably familiar with Finding Nemo quote, all drains lead to the ocean. With ice, it's pretty similar. Greenland and Antarctica are both surrounded by the ocean, and Alaska's glacier-heavy mountain ranges are bordered by the ocean on their west side. While there are many glaciers that end in rivers and lakes, like those in the Rockies, the Andes, the Alps, and the Himalayas, what happens when freshwater ice touches the ocean? This is where ice shelves and icebergs come in. When a glacier reaches the ocean, it can actually keep flowing just over the dense salt water instead of rock, perks of ice floating on top of water. When this happens, it's called an ice shelf. When big chunks of ice break off into the ocean, though, either from the end of a glacier or the end of an ice shelf, it becomes an iceberg and floats around in the ocean until it eventually melts. How long it takes an iceberg to melt is determined by the conditions of the ocean it's floating in. Is the ocean warm or cold, stagnant or fast-moving? And these ocean conditions also change the stability of ice shelves as well. You can imagine if an ice shelf has a bunch of warm water flowing under it, it's going to melt a heck of a lot faster than if it's sitting in a bunch of cold water. Talking with us today is my friend Mariama, a rad woman who's had experiences with many of these kinds of ice, including ice fields, glaciers, and icebergs. Mariama, do you want to introduce yourself? My name's Mariama Dryak. I recently completed my master's at the University of Maine in Earth and Climate Sciences, during which I studied how iceberg melt was related to how glaciers are changing on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is a sticky-outy bit of Antarctica. And before that, I received my bachelor's from Durham University in Northeast England, and I'm originally from a farm in Wisconsin. So what first drew you to ice? What first drew me to ice was learning about how glaciers and glaciation had carved the landscape of Wisconsin in a Wisconsin history class that I had taken in high school from Mr. Walters. And... I mean, we studied multiple aspects of Wisconsin's history, but I was just incredibly fascinated by how the landscape of Wisconsin had been carved by this astounding magnitude of ice. I think 
there had been up to a mile of ice over bits of Wisconsin uh, during the last glaciation. And so the fact that that ice could completely flatten the landscape was super fascinating to me. That's crazy that there was a mile of ice over Wisconsin. I know. At least that's what Mr. Walter said. <laughs> I might need to fact check that, but yeah. I believe it. I'll run with it. I'll fact check it before I publish this episode <laughs> and then keep it in if it sounds great. Hi, this is Future Kate, and yes, after some digging, one mile is correct. The ice might have even gotten up to two miles thick in some areas. So, Mariama, tell us about icebergs. So icebergs are these chunks of ice that break off of glaciers that end in the ocean and float around. Many of us know that the Titanic, or the demise of the Titanic, was related to it running into an iceberg. So how do icebergs relate to climate change? I use satellite imagery or pictures taken from space to measure how iceberg volume changed over time. The reason that this is relevant to climate change or how icebergs can tell us about climate change is because iceberg melt is reliant on ocean temperature and the velocity of the water around an iceberg because the velocity of the water mixes up or creates turbulence around ice, which can lead to more melt. And so their change is entirely ocean-driven. These icebergs are a great oceanographic tool for understanding what's happening there. And that means that measuring their change over time can tell us about potential changes in ocean conditions. And given that much of the Earth's radiation is absorbed by and has historically been absorbed by the ocean, as it warms, the pace at which icebergs melt tell us about that change. It is a much more affordable way of measuring change in really remote areas like around the Antarctic Peninsula, which is highly inaccessible in some areas and also really expensive to get to. And you get to do fun things like look at pictures of icebergs all day. (laughs) All day. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's true. I feel like I'm I'm very competent now at looking at a picture and being able to pick out the same iceberg from one period to the next and the specific glaciers I was studying as well. It's really magnificent. Are you any better at Where's Waldo now that you've spent two years doing this? I honestly can't say that I have played Where's Waldo <laughs> post-master's thesis work. So I'll have to check that out. Cool, cool. <laughs> So aside from icebergs, last summer you took a crazy awesome job, which was to trek around the Juneau ice field in Alaska with a bunch of students working on science projects. What was going through your head when you said yes to that job? (laughs) That's a big question. Yeah, so um, I was asked to be field staff for the Juneau ice field research program. And I think a lot led up to that, uh, to being able to say yes. So when I was asked if I would take the position, a million things all at once came into my head. Firstly, I felt like my entire body was like shaking its head yes in like wanting to do the position, but my brain was logically telling me that I couldn't accept the position until I had asked my advisor and gotten approval because I had intended on continuing research related to my master's over the summer. But I guess next, my brain automatically went into planning mode, as it sometimes does, in regards to how I could reorganize my commitments to be able to make it happen. And then finally, I thought, wow, this is an opportunity of a lifetime, especially given that I had not previously been a jerper, which is what jerp people call 
people who've done dirt. <laughs> great and name, great I name. thought I can't turn it down. So somehow I'll have to make it work and I 100% want to go. What was your favorite memory from the summer? Uh, interestingly, given how incredible the ice field is, that's really easy for me because I had this incredibly magical moment at what's called Camp 8. So in Derp, we, as you said, traverse across the Juneau ice field. So our traverse starts in Juneau, Alaska, and then we ski, I think, 100 kilometers or more east, east-ish to uh, Atlin, British Columbia. And all along the way, there are these what we call camps, and they're, they're uh, an assortment of buildings that have been built up on nunataks, um, which are little rock outcrops in the middle of ice. So we had skied to Camp 8 for a research project for students that I was helping with. And we had done all of our research. We were at the camp. And when we opened the camp, it was as many camps are when we first get there because it's so moist on the ice field. Everything was pretty much covered with, like, black mold. Oh, no. So spent, yeah, not great. Uh, we spent the first couple hours there, like, cleaning and bleaching everything and just completely washing and cleaning the buildings. And then uh, Camp is also known for waffles. There's one waffle iron on the whole Juno <laughs> ice field, so people just eat waffles all day. So we had cleansed everything. We made waffles. We had hiked up Mount Moore, which is this incredible and stunning mountain behind it. And we came down and we watched sunset on the top of Camp 8 from the roof. And then there was just this overwhelming feeling of awe and gratefulness for being on the ice field because from Camp 8 you could see so much of the ice field. And there was this feeling of camaraderie. And then we had someone performing slam poetry while we were bundled up in our sleeping bags on the on the roof of Camp 8. So I don't think anything can top that, even though there were so many incredibly stunning moments and, like, really big moments of connection with other people. But that's definitely my top. Oh, my God. That's so amazing. You're also very good at describing <laughs> it. I could just, like, picture everything. And also probably because I've incessantly uh, stalked your Instagram photos and whatnot. But <laughs> so good. Yeah. Um, so most of my teaching experiences are with high schoolers and middle schoolers and sometimes a little bit younger. What's it like to teach adults and be with adults in this crazy remote environment? It was a lot, but also super fun. And I think a learning experience, of course, for the students in the program, but also for me, every adult comes to the program with a different background. And I think a really incredible thing about JERP is that people are coming from all of these different backgrounds, be it related to their backgrounds in science, some who have studied glaciers before, and some who have taken very limited science but are super into art. Dealing with the varied past experiences of people and the experiences people bring with to the ice field was definitely a balancing act because you want everyone to be engaged. And so I think the way I tried to address that was to help guide people with more experience in something, to help teach the people who maybe didn't, and to just emphasize constantly, and I hope it was effective, to emphasize that we all are here to contribute different things. We're all coming from different backgrounds, and so having patience with everyone is super important because ultimately in an experience like this, 
everyone's problems or everyone's struggles or everyone's experience is relevant to everyone else because you're living with the same people for two months. And in terms of being a field staff member, as that experience, it was interesting because we are at all times accountable for managing risk in regards to glacier travel and safety, teaching that those safety techniques, so rope management and crevasse rescue. And we're also responsible for teaching skiing, responding to medical emergencies if and as they occur in the field. We're also, you know, we're responsible for communication and helping the students learn communication techniques like via radio. And we also act as emotional and academic support for students in the program. And so again, like with people's varied experiences and varied challenges, it can be a lot, but we're overall there to be that first line of support for almost anything the student needs. So <laughs> in conclusion, it's a lot to manage all at once, especially in attempting to attend to your own needs, but it's also an incredible learning experience and yeah, a great opportunity all around for growth as a human. And the rewards that everybody gets out of it, like the emotional rewards at the end, I'm sure are so huge because you have put together this really close-knit family. And I bet that's amazing. Right. And I think part of that, it's so amazing. And I, I think part of that emotional, like part of what makes the experience emotional is because every person grows in some way. Like everyone has to overcome some sort of challenge and even though that looks different for every person, there's a shared sense of growth at the end and of overcoming some sort of thing or learning some sort of thing that you didn't know before. Speaking of learning something you didn't know before, what is a fun fact about the Juno ice field? Oh, uh, <laughs> if you had to choose so one. <laughs> fun facts because of the fact that Jerp has been around for 70 plus years. But I'm going to settle with a depressing one. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> because this summer, like, especially as field staff when we're managing safety, was kind of a scary one because this summer the ice field experienced the highest rate of melt to occur in the past 70 plus years of the ice field in 2019. And so that meant, I mean, the program started a week-ish earlier, but we also had to move on like two weeks earlier from where we were because there were some locations like at Camp 10 where the snow was melting so fast that crevasses were opening up and it was just really hazardous. That's really important to know and learn too that First off, being a researcher for climate change means you're on the front lines all the time. But it's also really important to remember that when climate change is happening, it also is affecting the research that we're able to do and means we have to like change how we think about researching all of these things that we yeah. have been researching for 70 years. Right. And we have to think about changing logistics. There were people who had gone to the Juno Icefield to do research at Camp 10, but because of the melt they were only able to be there for like two or three days because of how the logistics worked out and because it was getting so dangerous. And so they had to completely reorganize their plans and their research questions to be able to do it either really fast or at a different location. Which then I guess goes back to using satellite imagery for doing research becomes that much more useful because we don't have to have people on the ground. Yeah, there. yes, that's so true. If yeah. you, I know you're kind of switching directions in your life right now, but if you could study anything else about ice, what would your next big question be? Oh, I still have lots of big questions. 
approximately 2 billion people across the world are reliant on glaciers as a, as a water resource. And with them diminishing, that has serious consequences for humans and how they've shaped their lives around the water resources coming from glaciers. So my question is relevant to a specific spot, and recently I've been interested in Patagonia or in South America, Patagonia glaciers, would be how are water resources from glaciers changing? How are people reliant on them being affected? And that might be in terms of drinking water, that might be in terms of their livelihoods and their subsistence on resources that are affected by glacial discharge. And what will that look like in the future? Like, what will this relationship between people and the water resources from glaciers look like in the future? And finally, how can we mitigate associated risks related to water shortages as associated with glacier mass loss? So I have lots of questions that I <laughs> do intend to investigate <laughs> in the future. Yay! Well, I will be so excited to hear all your upcoming stories about glaciers or water resources or education or any other cool things that you get up to. Great, thanks! Is there anything that you want to plug, any of the awesome stuff you're going to be doing with the Peace Corps or any social media or anything like that? Right, so my next steps right now are to enter the Peace Corps, so I'm going to be uh, an environmental education volunteer in Panama, a place with distinctly no eye. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there I'll be, I'll be working with the community. But I will occasionally, if I have access to internet, be keeping up with at Arctic Changes, which is my handle on Twitter. I tweet about uh, lots of different things. It's like accessibility to the earth sciences, glaciers, climate change, and running. <laughs> but also I have this blog called Let's Do Something Big that features different environmental topics from guest writers. So I have a website for that called let's do something big.weebly.com and that can be found on Instagram at LDSBIG. And finally, I have a podcast of my own called We Persist which shares the stories of women and underrepresented people in the earth, ocean, and environmental sciences. So if you're interested in checking that out and checking out the stories of rad people doing science across the world, you can find that on www.soundcloud.com slash podcast. And I'll also have a link to it on my website because it's an awesome podcast and y'all should listen to it. Great. Thanks for having me, Kate. Thanks for coming on. Now, let's do a recap of this episode. Basically, ice can do so many cool things. As a side note, I have to add that any ice is cool puns have actually come back around to be funny in my life again after putting a few good months between my current self and my grad school self. So yes, I will keep making them. But back to the narrative. Ice is behaving in different ways all over the world. When a glacier hits the ocean, it can either float on top of it and form an ice shelf, or it can break off and form icebergs. And pictures of these icebergs melting can actually be used to map how oceans are warming due to climate change. This is especially useful, one, because oceans soak up heat from the sun and so are warming fast, and two, because a lot of the places icebergs exist are hard to get to. So being able to study these extreme environments from satellite pictures cuts down on costs and risks for the scientists needing to go there. On land, ice can cover a landscape to form an ice sheet. Those of us in the 21st century are familiar with the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica, 
But if we had lived 20,000 years ago, we would have seen one that existed over a lot of North America, including Wisconsin. When that ice withdrew to the north, it left behind the landscape that we currently know and love. Glaciers can also come together to form ice fields, and one of these, the Juneau Ice Field in Alaska and British Columbia, has had scientists continuously studying it for over 70 years through the Juneau Ice Field Research Program, or JERP. Sadly, though, the ice is melting faster than it has in the past decades, and so some aspects of this program will likely change in the future and alter how scientists are able to collect their data. The speedier ice melt is something that is seen all over the world as our planet warms, and that is affecting the water that people rely on from the glaciers. So not only will researchers have to adapt their livelihoods, but people living around the glaciers will as well. Now, that's all pretty depressing, but to end on a good note, let's think about how amazing it is to ski through mountains, huddle in a sleeping bag to watch the sunset, and the freedom that comes when you take your boots off after a long and fulfilling day. And the next time you step outside your house, whether it's onto ice or not, Think about how your life might be affected by the frosty bits of our world. For the info in this episode, I would like to thank the professors in the School of Earth and Climate Science at the University of Maine, the Juno Icefield Research Program, and the Wisconsin Department of Transportation for having useful documents about Wisconsin's glacial history. Links to JERP and the Wisconsin DOT will be on my website. Thanks for tuning in!